This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. My guest today is music journalist Andy Allador, longtime senior editor and writer at Guitar Magazine, recognized worldwide as a guitar instructor and as a performer. He's been on the music scene for 35 years, and in that time has interviewed or written about mm, just about everybody. He's toured and recorded with the bandmates of the original Jimi Hendrix band and Stevie Ray Vaughan's band. Andy has sold over 1 million guitar instruction DVDs and teaches online as well as privately. He performs all over with his band, The Groove Kings, and he is the co-author, along with Alan Paul, of the New York Times best-selling book, Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, yeah, and we went to grammar school together. Hi, Andy. <laughs> Hi, Marion. <laughs> Should we talk about Mrs. Fromm now or later? Oh, Mrs. Fromm. That was our kindergarten teacher. Our kindergarten teacher who was so kind. Who was so incredibly? Wasn't she great? She was fantastic. She was. She she got me through school, and it's a great curiosity to me to think about all those people we have traveled along with, all the talent that perhaps emerged from PS ninety four and Little Neck Queens. I love to think about Mrs. Fromm and how maybe sitting under those desks, those under the desk drills that we engaged in during the Cuban Take Missile cover. Crisis. Or, all clear. Or the talent show that we all participated in, you know, or that dynamic art teacher we all had. And, you know, how all that goes into who we become. So let's start there. I mean, when and where, because I might have missed it on the playground, did you pick up your first musical cue to become who you are? Um, you, you didn't miss it, but, you know, my mom, who, uh, uh, Amy, my sister, who's good, as we were saying before we started recording for the show, my sister Amy Allardort, uh grew up with and is the same age as your older sister Margaret, and they've stayed in touch over the years, and so they had a friendship, and Amy just reminded me that our mothers actually were good friends uh, in the PTA mm-hmm. at the time. So my mother, Marilyn Allardort, uh, she had been a singer um, and actress uh, in the 40s, late 30s and 40s. Her big uh, production was that she was uh, in Where's Charlie, uh, where Ray Bulger, the scarecrow from Wizard of Oz, was the star. And she was in a lot of, you know, like off-Broadway and community theater uh, productions mm-hmm. with B. Arthur from Maud. And anyway... We had a piano in the house. She sang. She bought a guitar for me before I was born in 1955. She bought the guitar, and I was born in 56. But, um, you know, we, since we're talking about kindergarten and that art teacher, I was very, very into art. And starting in kindergarten started to really 
exhibit, I guess, some ability in art, so much so that my mother started bringing me for painting lessons and all of this stuff. And art became my whole focus starting at about five or six years old. Um, but when the Beatles came out shortly thereafter in February of 64, when we were about eight years old, I fell in love with the Beatles. And so the shortest answer is that I started to play guitar in 1967 at 11, but it wasn't, but art was my main focus uh, and didn't really get serious about the guitar until I was 17. And mm -hmm. I was already at School of Visual Arts, had started at School of Visual Arts in New York City in 1973 to get a degree in art, which is what I did. I got a Bachelor of Fine mm -hmm. Arts. But so the music thing sort of, Right when I was starting college, I was also playing guitar for six or seven hours a day. And so wow, I was, I was as happy as a clam. I, I had art all day long and music all day night. and Art all the time. Well, let's talk about art for a second in the largest sense, because I want to get to how you crafted this just great book on Stevie Ray Vaughan in a minute. But there's this idea of how we become artists, and you've just given us a nice little skim across the biography of your artistic self. You're a musician and a writer and apparently a visual artist, and you've interviewed more artists than anyone I know. So you're the person I've kind of been waiting to ask this question of. In your book, you have this great phrase for Stevie Ray Vaughan. You refer to him as a sheer force of desire. So let's talk about desire for a minute and the life of an artist. You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, and that desire is honed on the obstacles that are set in our path. You know, we don't really get anywhere from anybody saying yes. I mean, you get a yes for an assignment, but you still have that hard work to produce a piece. In physics, they call it the strong force, you know, those opposing forces. And I always wonder about the strong forces that, that act against us that really hone our art. What do you, what do you think? What was the, what's the oppositional force to all the encouragement you got or or, or what really honed this great desire for you more than anything else, do you think? Well, you know, I would have to start with the opposite of that. Um, only uh, because while you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, your father was a, a very successful writer, uh, I believe. And mm -hmm. yep. I would imagine some... You know, it was in your DNA to some degree. And I, speaking for myself, mm -hmm. I felt like um, uh, music and art uh, was in my DNA from my surroundings, um, you know, nature versus nurture. But it was just there constantly. There was music. There was beautiful paintings in the house, too. Um, you know, uh, both my parents, you know, it's, there were Picassos, uh, you know, they weren't original. But uh, <laughs> an awareness to all of these things and sort of the importance, this is a beautiful part. And then here's where the writing part comes in. You know, for whatever reason, my mother was an English teacher, primarily teaching English as a second language. And so the English language was something that both my parents, uh, my father was like a month shy of getting his PhD in psychology and he just got sick of being in college. But avid reader, both of them. And when I was seven, my mom was giving me great expectations and Moby Dick, T. 
to read. She'd say, read this. Oh, I love her for that. And yeah. I, I would try. I remember trying so hard to read Great Expectations at about seven years old, thinking this is impossible. But I did skip third grade and went from second grade. Mrs. Ruther, who was so wonderful, and then spent one month with Mrs. O'Donnell, who was the meanest teacher in the entire school, and then mm-hmm. went straight yep. to, to Mrs. Mrs. McDermott, who I had for fourth and fifth grade, who I liked so much I co- would call her mom by accident, which was embarrassing <gasps> but endearing. <sighs> she got mad, but she liked it. But anyway, the reason I skipped, <laughs> I know, this is ridiculous. Like I was waving, raising my hand, trying to get her attention. I went, Mom. And she oh. just looked at me like, oh, my God. One, Marion, one day I was out sick, and I needed a homework assignment. And I knew she lived in Douglaston, so I got the phone book out. This is in, like, fourth grade. Oh, no. No, no. And fourth I, grader gets on the phone to his teacher. No, yeah, no. Yeah, I call, I call her up. <laughs> Hi, is this Mrs. McDermott that teaches at PS94? Yes. Yeah, hi, it's Andy Eldred. I'm in your class. What's the homework assignment? And she goes, don't you have a classmate that you can call? Yeah. And I went, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. But anyway, um, I skipped third grade because on a a reading test, they told me in second grade that I was reading at fifth grade level. Now, whether I had a lucky day the day I took that test or, I, in fact, my reading was advanced, I don't know. Yeah, they skipped a lot of us. They skipped my sister and they skipped me. Yeah. Okay. So you don't think there's an oppositional force. You think it's about encouragement. You think that it's about people getting behind you and, and bringing you along in terms of success. Well, That's I, interesting. I do think I, there I are both oppos- answers to that. I do think there are oppositional forces, and I can talk about those too, definitely, in art and music. Mm-hmm. But I can't deny that I was so encouraged in art and music. Um, And then it can't be uh, downplayed that, you know, the Beatles were such a force um, culturally that, like, the Brodas, who lived next door to me, and uh, the O'Neills, who lived down the block, and all my friends starting at seven, eight, nine years old, you know, like knowing all the songs on the new Beatle record the day it came out and being able to sing them was this sort of, you know, badge of honor. So there was yes. a competitive thing about being on top of it. And then we grew up at a time in the 60s where there was a lot of attention. And this started when I was younger and I started going to summer camp. The people that ran the camp were ex-Peace Corps people. So... There was a lot of uh, subliminal, subliminal, I can't even talk, sorry, subliminal as it may have been, um, the connection between the civil rights movement and folk music um, was uh, mm-hmm. couldn't be denied. And the camp would take us to these uh, folk festivals where Pete Seeger would play. And there was a camp that Janice Ian's dad owned that we would go to. And she was probably not much older than us. And so there was this real awareness, let's say by the time we get to 67, 68, of the importance of civil rights and the connection of the youth movement and what we used to call the counterculture um, 
and art and music. And so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, music was going to fe- clean up. We, we were really expressing that. We were going to clean up the world's problems, and we were singing about it. I think it was ex- an extremely yeah. and, strong and, and, force and, and, of support. And then I was always, always interested in film, too. So the films, you know, like uh, the influence of right. European cinema on American films in the 60s, you know... Th- my parents, <laughs> I guess they couldn't leave me home alone, so they would take me <laughs> to, uh, in Manhasset, there was this movie theater that showed all these crazy foreign films, like, you know, women An in art the house dunes. film, yes, absolutely. The art house, yep. yep so yep, I yep. saw all these crazy movies like Morgan and The Knack, and um, my dad took me to the Ipcris file, at the Little Neck Movie Theater, like best Ian Fleming before Bond movies even came out. Right. And so, I don't know. You know, they just hit me with all the stuff that was fascinating. And I brought up the cultural part of it because you couldn't, um, uh, that couldn't be denied uh, an awareness to the power of all that in, in 1968 sure. and 69. So, it just to answer your question about oppositional force is that mm-hmm. um, I did put a lot of pressure on myself to try to do well at whatever it was I was doing, and um, when I first tried to go to college at sixteen, I went to University of Hartford to try to get in the art school there, and was turned down. Thank God, and was you know, treated pretty poorly. And so I would definitely classify that as an oppositional force because it really made me feel like, well, you know, I don't agree with them. And mm-hmm. uh, it made me want to work harder. Um, so, uh, so I think that's a strong, yeah. I think it's an important influence. Yeah, absolutely. And you've talked a lot about your parents. And I, I know that you were, this. there's a great scene in your life where you're in the kitchen with your, you're in your mother's kitchen in 1983 and uh, a David Bowie song comes on, let's dance. And you thought it was Albert King on the record, I think. And well, you're exactly uh, right. Yes. That's in the book. Yeah. Yeah, Sheer blues over an essentially a disco track. And who was it? And what did you begin to be as you listened to that piece? Well, it was Steve Ray Vaughan. Um, you know yep. that was that my introduction to some new guitar player named Steve Ray Vaughan, and did the uh, appearance of Steve Ray Vaughan on that David Bowie track, the first single from that record, which ultimately became the biggest record David Bowie ever had. Guy sold a lot of records. Um, mm-hmm. Steve's appearance on that track was the world's introduction to this new guitar player, Steve Ray Vaughan. Uh, Eric Clapton is quoted in the book saying that he was in his car. The song came on the radio, and as soon as the guitar solo started, he pulled his car over, and he thought, <laughs> "I need to know, I need to know who this is right yeah. now. Like, I don't need, I don't want to know who yeah. this is like tomorrow or the next day. I need to know this minute." And he said that he said he could only think of one other time that ever happened in his life when he heard yeah. Dwayne Allman playing on uh, the wait um, with Aretha Franklin. Right. And so yeah. it's pretty powerful. And, um, uh, yeah, that was my introduction to Stevie. Yeah, you make the point that he that listening to that, 
in your head, he, he, you, he, that he and you shared a sort of musical taxonomy that you heard your own musical influences in his playing. And yes. we all know that feeling, like when we read somebody's work and it has a familiarity or we bite into something and it tastes very, very much like home or something that we would make. And late in the book, you quote Bonnie Raitt as saying that Stevie Ray Vaughan, quote, synthesized his influences and turned them into something so fiercely personal. And in terms of, so what happened in terms of purely biographical terms for you with him? I mean, did you just say, that's where I come from too, and this is who I'm going to follow? I think a lot of people are very nervous about those moments in, in, the, in life, and yet it seemed like it was a really big taxonomical moment for you where you said, I'm in. This is my thing. I get this. This is where he ended up listening to all this music. I got to go someplace too. Maybe I'm reading more into it than not, but these are moments that frighten some people and awaken others. That's what it felt like to me, that it awakened something in you. Well, uh, just to understand, um, you know, Stevie was only a, a little over a year older than me. Um, he was born in October of 54, uh, and I was born in March of 56. So it was a year and a few months. And, you know, I formed my first band in 1974. So that's, you know, almost 10 years before I heard Steve Ray Vaughan. already had my mu mm -hmm. guitar and musical influences firmly in place. At the top of the list in 1974 were Jimi Hendrix and Ornette Coleman, who, you know, mm -hmm. are kind of, you know, diverse, uh, musically speaking. One is the <laughs> the king of rock guitar and the other is the king of free jazz. And um, really all I was listening to at the time was Jimi Hendrix, Kareem, Ornette Coleman, and John Coltrane. I sort of refused to listen to Not anything bad. else. Not um, Yeah, well, you know... <laughs> And I put a lot of pressure, you talk about oppositional forces, I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to learn how to play all that stuff and all their music. And um, in the case of Jimi Hendrix, it was extremely difficult. But I love that challenge every single day to try to get better and better and better at playing like Jimi Hendrix. And I mean, I'm not, there's plenty of people who uh, do it uh at least as well, if not better than I do. But I can tell you that when the guys who played with Jimi Hendrix, his drummer Mitch Mitchell and bass player Billy Cox, and when the guys who played with Stevie Ray Vaughan, Chris Layton, and Tommy Shannon, heard my replications of Jimi Hendrix, they all thought it was Hendrix. They couldn't believe it was <gasps> not Jimi Hendrix. Um, well, you have these DVDs out that teach us how to play. Like my favorite of them is the best of Jimi Hendrix experience, Electric Ladyland. You teach us how to play all along the watchtower. Honest to God, if it wasn't <laughs> yes. for that song, I don't think I would have gotten through my teenage years. So right. you have over a million of these DVDs out in production that teach us how to do this. You've got Eric Clapton, B.B. King, Keith Richards, Jimi Hendrix. So that's pretty wonderful. Um, as a writer, you learned to, as a guitar player, you learned how to teach us. As a writer, you've learned how to teach us. This is a multi-platform right. life you've got, right? That's yeah. fascinating. And the writing thing, you know, to go back to the Steve Ray Vaughan thing in 1983, um, I had already been playing in bars since 1974. And so... 
um, I was firmly established in my own mind and in my life and in my daily practices and everything I did as a guitar player and a musician. Um, so when Stevie came along, I was happy to hear someone like that and interested in him. And it, it, so it wasn't a cataclysmic moment. Um, mm -hmm. But I have a line I like to say is Steve Ray Vaughan made it okay to play Voodoo Child, which is just Jimi Hendrix song. He made it okay to play Voodoo Child in a bar. <laughs> because I'd been trying to play you Hendrix's know, music in bars since 1974, and everybody would say, you know, the guy died four years ago. Like, we're, we're tired of that stuff. We don't want to hear it anymore. And, of oh. course, I found out later from getting becoming friends with Stevie and getting to know him that he experienced exactly the same thing I did. But once he became mm -hmm. famous, people were like, yeah, we like that. So then yeah. I could play and can still today play Voodoo Child in a bar more because of Stevie than because of Jimmy. Uh. So Stevie did a wonderful thing by turning, you know. Stevie did a wonderful thing, yes. He did a wonderful thing yes. by, by, by turning the world back, uh, uh, musical world's attention back to very powerful music. And we talk about it all the time. And of course, that includes all the blues heroes like Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and Hubert Sumlin and B.B. King and Albert King and Freddie King. And and so, right. uh, but I do want to add that um, the first thing that happened when I met Stevie, um, well, I heard Stevie in 83. He played my father's place club in Long Island in '84, and I saw him, and he was yeah. And I want to talk about that for a minute because I I hung out there too, so I suspect we were in the same bar at the same time. Oh many oh yeah, you had to go to my father's place. Oh my god, but the first place I ever snuck in with fa fake uh, ID to see Buzzy Linhart at 15 was yeah. my father's place, and I must have seen gotta, Buzzy Linhart there a thousand times. Yeah, you gotta you gotta have friends. <laughs> Did you try to sneak in to see Jasper Stone at McDimple's? You know what I'm talking about? I didn't sneak in to see Jasper Stone. I went to Buzzy at 15, Aztec two-step a thousand times when I was you know, in my <laughs> early teens. This is the, the New York City youth that we had. My first club was the Fillmore East at 14 to see Mountain. So I love that you love oh Leslie God. West. I, I You're was, lucky. I'm friends with Leslie. Oh, Give him my love. Get, you know where he was born? Marion, you know where <laughs> no. he was born? No. He was born in Fort Totten. No, right across from where I grew up. Yeah. That's too funny. Well, we could do this forever, but let's talk about the the, the book. The, the, you met him. Uh, okay. I, I know you saw him at my father's place. I loved when I read that because that was such a formative bar for me, even though I was illegally there. But you write that, that the, the, this is the kind of book that Stevie deserved. Um, and I love that line. And so let's give this the context it needs. He, he was a sharecropper's son who went on to play with the biggest of the bigs that his own bands produced a sound that was unlike any other. So what is his place in our musical history for those people who don't know his music? And why did he deserve such a book? Uh, Stevie deserved a book because the first thing is, um, you know, there's about 100 books about Jimi Hendrix. And there was really one book written about Stevie that was at least what could be considered a serious biography. And it came out very shortly after he passed called Caught in the Crossfire, written by Joe Nick Patotsky. And um, 
I believe Bill Crawford was the co-author. And nobody, uh, none of the principal people, the people in his band, his brother, his Stevie's family, none of those people participated in the writing of that book, uh, with the exception of his uncle, uh, Joe Cook, was the only person who uh, participated. So there were a lot of things that I felt were lacking in that book. And it did come out right after Stevie passed. We didn't intend, Alan and I, to wait 30 years to write a book about Stevie, but there is an advantage to 30 years of hindsight about someone's career and their importance and their influence because musicians like John Mayer, who is in his, someone who's in his 40s now and has been influencing musicians himself for 20 years, Steve Ray Vaughan was his greatest influence. So we were writing this book from a completely different perspective where uh, the importance of Stevie as a musician and as a person and his impact um, culturally and musically was much clearer because we have all this you know, perspective on it. Um, mm-hmm. So there was really one That's book. So that, so, so that was one reason, one reason that I, I felt, and Alan and I both felt, Stevie really deserved the book. But the other is a much simpler reason is that I got to know Stevie and he was a wonderful, wonderful person. And so for me personally, it wasn't like the task of writing a book about someone who's important historically for one reason or another, although he happens to be. I was also writing a book about somebody that I knew who I had Mm -hmm. felt I had formed a friendship with because I interviewed him a lot of times and we'd sit around and play guitar and um, other than the very first time where he played his guitar and my, I played my guitar and we jammed, every other time after that I'd bring my guitar and he would play my guitar. And the last thing he ever said to me about a month before he died was he handed me back my guitar after playing it the entire time we sat and talked. It was me and Stevie and his brother Jimmy Vaughn, the three of us. He stood up and handed me my guitar. He said, well, I still love your guitar. And oh. so, and then subsequently, subsequently after his passing, between 1990 and by the year 2000, those 10 years, I'd become very, very close with Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon from Stevie's band Double Trouble, and I was touring and recording with them. And so that played a huge part in my connection to Stevie and Stevie's life and his world and his friends. Um, Mm -hmm. and Jimmy Vaughn, his older brother, I had met in 1989. So, um, I had a real visceral connection to Stevie as a person that came from my own experiences with him and then from becoming such close friends with those people around him. And that enabled us to write a book like this, to conduct 400 new interviews. This is not an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. Um, mm-hmm. including his family, Stevie's family members, and Jimmy Vaughn himself, who it took two years to convince him to come on board, even though he knew me. The reason it took so long is because it's a very emotional thing for him, but I'm so thankful, we are so thankful that he did. And, um, you know, I love Jimmy, and his contributions to the book uh, are invaluable. So... That's why I feel Stevie really deserved this book. He was a wonderful person. He was such yeah. a great person. 
along with being one of the greatest guitar players the world has ever known. You create this sort of 360 around him, which I found fascinating. A quote from him, a quote from his brother, from his cousin, his peers, famous rock and rollers. It's it's almost like a stereo surround sound. And I, and I adored that. I think that's one of the reasons the book is just so widely and delightedly adored by people, because it's got this sense that you did, and, and, and it could only be through 400 interviews that you did that. Um, but how do you, as a writer, get out from under your own love of the person? This is a tricky place for people. You know, we always tell, I was brought up at the New York Times, and we were always told, don't go in with any kind of intent. You know, don't mm-hmm. assume the person is guilty. Don't assume the person is whatever. So how did you get out of your own way? Was it the reporting that allowed you not to just to make it a, an adoration of somebody who you really admired? Well, that's such a good question, Marion. Um, you know, uh, in 2005, so a number of years before, you know, I mean, I didn't even think about writing a book about Sue Ray Vaughan until Alan Paul asked me which I guess was in 2017. But in 2005, I started. I was hired by Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers to play with them. Um, and the reason I bring that up is when you become close with someone who's extremely famous, something happens that you're not necessarily, necessarily aware of immediately. You become very protective of these people because they're famous mm. and they're constantly being... Mm approached and sort of, in your mind, attacked by the outside world. And so I became aware of how protective I became of Dickie because we were friends. And so thankfully, I already had an awareness to uh, what it is to have too much of myself um, in the picture. But let's not forget, I started writing interviews with musicians in 1985 and I had a good 35 years of experience of doing that. So when I started doing that from the get-go, I knew a good reporter didn't uh, inject his own personal feelings too much. And when I would read other people's writing and they did, I hated it. And so a writer, (laughs) yeah, a writer who never did that, Peter Goralnik, who is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, music historian uh, historians, um, who wrote recently the wonderful book, Sam Phillips, The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll, um, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be an autobiography co-written by Pete, and then Sam just didn't want to do it. And Pete said, I'm not you know, going to just let all this stuff sit here. So he finished it as a biography. But that's what I just loved about Pete. And a guy I got to meet, and this is just sort of incidental, but someone whose writing I always loved was George Vesey, who wrote for the oh, Times. I love him. My father hired him. That's too funny. <laughs> he, Did you ever meet him George? Into a sports writer. He'd been, he'd been, oh, sure. Um, he'd been a religion writer, and my dad made him a sports writer, or he'd been a sports, I'm trying to remember the order, but yes, I knew George, of course, at the New York Times. Yes, how oh, lovely. I love George. <laughs> Yeah, well, it turned out we had a mutual friend. So, I, so in recent years, last five years, I've hung out with George a lot of times. He lives in Port Washington. And for those who wow. don't know, he wrote Coal Miner's Daughter, um, uh, Loretta Lynn's story with uh, Sissy mm-hmm. Spacek. Levon Helm was in the film from the band. And sure. um, so I did have role models as writers. 
I might not have had many, um, but those were two that were powerful. And That's, those are good. Those will work. They're good ones. Pink but you Aralnik made an interesting decision. Yeah, you made a really interesting decision that I that I want to talk about as we start to wind this down, and that is. We've got this veritable who's who of, 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 of America. All kinds of people show up in this book. You've got Stevie Wonder and Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown singing Amazing Grace at Stevie Ray Vaughan's funeral um, after he dies in this helicopter crash. You, it, he and his band die in the helicopter crash. You've got, you've got people and you know, amazing choices of who to leave in and who to leave out. But you made this decision to include and, and you must have had some hard decisions there, but you made this decision to include photos of programs, tickets, business cards, venue calendars, postcards, booking receipts, pages from the tour notebook. And my favorite thing that you do, though, is in the end of the book, after the epilogue, you put in this list of Stevie's gear, listing his guitars <laughs> and where he got them. The amplifiers, the pedals, the picks, the note straps, and the strings are all annotated. How did you know that we would love that? Because I just went face down in the book when I saw that. And I'm not a guitar collector. It was the personal, ah. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that you like that because there was, you know, a little back and forth about whether we should include that, you know, whether it was too, you know, guitar head uh, and that, <laughs> you know, people that weren't guitar players would just head. go. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, people who weren't guitar players would go. This is all Greek to me, and you know, I don't really care. Um, but oh, I no. could tell you. Mm -mm. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Um, you know, so whenever it was, it was it was um, shortly after Stevie passed. I wrote a tremendous a lot of different articles about Stevie. And one of them, I had the opportunity to do a really long, like two and a half hour interview with Renee Martinez, who was his guitar tech. Now, Marion, I mean, I am a psycho for detail. So um, <laughs> given the opportunity, I asked Renee about every possible screw in Stevie's guitar, every tube, preamp tube, we weren't talking capacitors, but it, we got pretty down there to, you know, a crazy level of detail. And Renee was happy to talk to me about those things. And Great. So for guitar players, you know, and Stevie had talked to me about him, about some of these things himself, which was a lot of fun, you know, like that he had made this decision to replace all the speakers in all of his amps, 34 different amps with... Electro voice speakers and his wording that he used, he said, well, I just decided to spray all my amps with the same speakers, you know, like spray paint. <laughs> this is a really yeah. bizarre way to say it. Um, anyway, so that's where, uh, how I was able to put that together, the details of it's each great. guitar, where Stevie got it, um, the strings, the picks, the pickups, the amps, the pedals, um, and uh, I'm glad to hear that you uh, enjoy that as well. I loved it. It's a kind of bibliography, and it's a kind of annotation, and it's a kind of laying on of hands that brings it ever more close to the reader. So before I let you go, I've got to let people know where they can see you. You're on the road with your band, The Groove Kings, 
And well, when there when there used to be a road, uh, is there still a road? When there used to, is, are there, <laughs> I'm hoping, Andy, that there's still a road, so we can find you uh, online. But how often do you play uh, out in the on the road? Well, you know, previous to the Black Plague descending upon us, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was play out a lot. You know, two three times a week in all kinds of different configurations. I have my band, which is uh, Andy Alder and the Groove Kings. I have a band called Friends of the Brothers that is comprised of alumni from, you know, uh, people who played with someone in the Almond Brothers. And so they're all incredible musicians, and that's a great band. And I'll play solo gigs and duet gigs. And so I play, because I live in Seacliff on Long Island, primarily the tri-state area, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Um and under normal circumstances, I'm playing, you know, two to three nights a week uh, in any one of these incarnations, you know, all over the place. And then we're going to go out to Colorado uh, and do a 30th anniversary of Stevie's passing on August 27th. Um, uh, and that'll be a lot of fun. Alan and I are going out. to So with the release of the book, I started to do some Steve Ray Vaughan tribute shows, too. And Great. So those might be at the new My Father's Place, which still exists in as a My Father's mm-hmm. Place now, and uh, mm-hmm. or a variety of places. So people look on my Facebook page, uh, Andy Aldor, or my website, andyaldor.com. You know, they can find all the information about uh, gigs. Once we get over this crazy phase we're in, and um, we can go back to some some sense of normalcy. Great. Well, thank you, Andy. Thank you so much, Marin. Oh, you're welcome. Just so great to hear your voice again. And, and that, that's Andy Allardort. His book, Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan, is available wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 